We have a tendency to judge other people's joy. Often it's a kind of jealousy. We're jealous of how free they seem. Um, when we can actually take a breath and say, actually, I'm excited for her, just like I hope she'd be excited for me. We're back with a brand new series of How To Be Sad. I'm Helen Russell, author, journalist, and happiness researcher. And each week I'll be talking to a special guest about how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. Now, if you're listening in the US, I am excited to share that the book, How To Be Sad, is going to be available in bookstores everywhere starting October 5th. You can pre-order now on bookshop.org, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you like to buy books, eBooks, and audiobooks, and I will love you forever. Welcome to How To Be Sad. Many of us these days are getting the memo that a meaningful, fulfilled life comes only from letting go of our attachments to worldly things. But my guest today has other ideas. Ingrid Fettel-Lee is a designer and writer who spent 10 years studying the relationship between design and joy. She's the author of the 2018 book Joyful, and her blog Aesthetics of Joy helps people use design to bring more joy into their lives. Because just as embracing all of our emotions, like sadness, helps us to lead a richer life, my guest today argues that pursuing momentary and small-scale joy, especially when it pushes us out of our comfort zone, makes for a more rounded way of living. She says now, I don't need to be happy to feel joy. I don't have to worry about making everything awesome in my life. So today we're going to find out why a few moments of joy can lift us and help us to be sad well. Ingrid, thank you so much for joining us. So I have loved sort of deep diving into your work and I would love if it's okay with you to start at the beginning when you began to notice how many of us find joy in the material world. You you make the great point that we always put an effort into making our environment more delightful, like candles on birthday cakes and hanging lights for the holidays. And why would we do that if it didn't bring us joy? So yeah, tell us a little bit about your journey here. I was in my first year of design school and a professor made an offhand comment. Um, He said that my work gave him a feeling of joy. And this was a really strange thing to me because as you point out, I had always thought of design as kind of incidental to our happiness and our well-being. And I had always been made to feel like it was a bit superficial to care too much about the things around me. And so when this professor connected joy, this very ephemeral, intangible feeling to these tangible things I had designed, I... I was confused and I was curious. And so I asked, how did, how does that work? And the professor and the, this full panel of professors in front of me couldn't answer the question. And so this started me asking people about the things and places that brought them joy. I wanted to understand, was this a, a common phenomenon? And one of the things that I found as I was asking people about this is that there were certain things that seemed to cause joy the world over. Um, there were certain things that you mentioned a few of them, birthday candles on cakes and confetti and tree houses and swimming pools and cherry blossoms. There were certain things that seemed to be joyful the world over. And tell me about colour, because I feel when when I knew I was meeting you today, I was thinking, oh goodness, I'm wearing black. This is terrible. I felt like I should be wearing colour. And I feel like a lot of your work and your blog, colour is is very much sort of brought to the fore and represented. The importance of colour in joy, please. When I looked at the things that people 
were saying brought them joy, these sort of universal things that brought joy the world over. I noticed that one of the things that stood out about them was that many of them featured bright color. And it seems very sensible, right? If you imagine a, a celebration anywhere around the world, you'll see bright color. And if you try to imagine that celebration in black and white or in gray, it just doesn't seem to have as much joy, right? It doesn't seem to radiate in the same way. And one of the reasons for this, as I started to trace back, you know, why would color have such a connection to joy? One of the reasons for this has to do with our evolution, and in particular, the evolution of our color vision. Our color vision evolved in part to help our ancestors find ripe fruits and young leaves in the treetop canopy. Um, these were sources of nourishment and nutrition. And so on some level, when we see, you know, a pop of bright color today, it's not to say that we think that it's necessarily going to nourish us, but it taps into some of the same brain circuits uh, that used to be activated when we would find something sweet to eat. And so on some level, color is energizing because it once was a sign of energy. I love that. And it just made me think about all, you know, Dorothy before she goes you know, into into the sort of magical realm, the idea that we watched movies for so long in black and white and just that a lot of life is still in black and white. I wonder how that, it's not really a question, it's more just, I just find it interesting pre-Technicolor how we had to make a bit of an imaginative leap really to to get the richness of some of these stories and the films that the golden age of Hollywood would have been showing us. Right. Well, I don't know if you've seen that movie Pleasantville. It's yes. a very old movie now, but I think one of the striking things about it is that when the people in the town start to discover joy, it starts to colorize them. Yes. Right. And so as they experience different pleasures, they start to turn into color and then they can't go back. They can't put themselves back into the black and white. They sort of stay in color. Um, and this creates a lot of disruption. And I think that's very similar to how we feel when we find joy. We feel brought to life. We feel like we are in color. We're living in color when we experience these little moments of joy. It's so interesting. And I, I live in Denmark, which until very recently, there was a running joke that the the aesthetics and that what people wore in the fashion was very much grey and black. And it was all, you know, monochrome. And apart from the pops of colour and perhaps the houses by the harbour in Copenhagen that people might imagine when they think of Denmark, really the aesthetic was very pared back. And yet Denmark still was coming top of the polls for happiness and was always voted one of the, the happiest countries in the world. I wonder whether that's just they had so much going for them that they could handle the monochrome colour palette as well. It's an interesting one. It is an interesting tension, right? Um, this idea that our surroundings aren't always um, as joyful as we might like. Um, but I think what's interesting there, as you point out, is that there are certain social structures that enable joy. And I think there are also, color is certainly not the only aesthetic of joy. And there are lots of other aesthetics that you find in Denmark or in other Scandinavian countries that do lead to a feeling of joy. Um, they're often, for example, um, you know, water through the middle of a city um, or access to nature. Um, those are, you know, major sources of joy that don't necessarily involve bright 
bold pops of color. So I think there are other ways. I mean, in my work, I look at 10 different aesthetics of joy and, you know, they're all different ways of accessing it. Color is one of the most salient, but it's certainly not the only one. Yeah. Tell us a little more about, about spending time in nature and plants. And I've, I've studied um, the forest bathing over the years, but I know you found that to be a really important, crucial one. One of the things that uh, we see in a lot of different joyful places um, is a connection to nature. And this might be through plants, through natural textures or sensations, you know, sensations like birdsong sounds can be a source of joy. And one of the reasons for this um, is that these natural sounds and sensations seem to calm our nervous system on a primal level. Uh, They help to restore our attention and our concentration. In some studies, they even speed healing. So in a seminal study, people recovered more quickly from gallbladder surgery and they needed less pain medication when they had a view of nature out their window as opposed to looking out at a brick wall. So there are lots of benefits that come from having proximity to nature and simply just the aesthetic sensations of that. It could be having a plant on your desk. Um, There's sort of simple things you can do to bring that indoors. If you don't necessarily have a green view out your window, you can start to bring some of those sensations indoors uh, to bring some of the benefits of that into your life as well. That's Yeah, that's a really good tip. And I was also very interested in reading in your book about what we do to compensate when we are lacking some of the sensations that as human beings we crave, perhaps not always on a, on a conscious level. And I wonder if you could tell us about the time when you were in Hawaii and you found yourself snacking less. I found that so fascinating and it rang all of the bells my end. <laughs> this was a trip a few years ago. I went to Hawaii and I was out hiking every day. We would take little day trips to beaches. It was a place I'd been before, but uh, we were sort of adventuring to all sorts of new areas. We went to a different island than we had been to before. And I noticed that I wasn't hungry between meals. We would have a meal and I wasn't snacking, as you pointed out. And I got home and 10 a.m. rolled around and there I was back in the office snack cabinet looking for something to munch on. And I started to wonder if maybe the the problem wasn't that I was hungry, right? Uh, or that I was less hungry on vacation, but that I was more sensorially fulfilled. That when I was in this lush environment with all these wonderful sensations around me, I felt like my senses, there was a, there was a feeling of joy that was so ready and and close to the surface. And when I was back in my office and surrounded by gray walls and typing away on the computer, my fingers just had the sensations of keys as opposed to the feeling of sand and sea and bark and all of these wonderful things that I had while I was out on my vacation, that I had a kind of sense hunger. And that often when we feel that kind of sense hunger, We're looking for stimulation and we turn to sugar or we turn to food because that is the most accessible sensorial stimulation that we have. And so one of the things that I've done since then is to make my office, make my workspace more sensorially 
abundant, right? More fulfilling. Um, and I do that through images on the walls that bring me a sense of joy, um, a soft textures under my feet. Um, I have a, a sheepskin um, so that there's something soft nearby. Music, uh, a scented candle, things that bring those sensations into my day-to-day life so that I don't feel this this craving um, and I don't feel like I'm I don't wander off in search of them. It's almost a reframing of, I think people might typically describe it as boredom eating. It seems to me that it's it's a reframing of, of the idea that oh, boredom is sort of a state, but what you're saying is actually it's an absence of something that is perfectly normal, that we are supposed to be having this stimulation. And so when we haven't got it, we are f- experiencing this lack and trying to find it in whatever way is most convenient, I guess, which is snacking in many cases. That's a really important reframe because I think you're right. The way that we we don't often think about our senses in the equation of boredom. We think about our minds, um, but our senses are a really important connection between our minds and our bodies and the world around us. And I think we often tune out. We tune out our bodies and we tune out the world around us. Um, we don't pay much attention to those things in the equation of our happiness and well-being. So we're just sort of monitoring what's going on for us internally. We forget that actually our ancestors would have been in surroundings that were quite stimulating in a, in a very gentle way, right? When you go out into nature, you might be surprised to find that it's actually quite loud, right? That there are birds, there are frogs, there are insects, there are, there are noises. Um, there's a lot of stimulation, but it's not distracting stimulation. It's not in the same way that nature can be quite vibrant and vivid, but it doesn't feel like it's clashing or um, jumping out at us. I think that level of stimulation is something that's missing from most of our office and and many of our home environments where we have a lot of beiges and grays and whites around us. Uh, we don't have a lot of air currents or humidity changes or those sort of soft um, sounds in the background. And so I think it is very much a sense that We evolved in an environment that has this stimulation, and yet the environment we've created for ourselves really lacks it. I love the idea of air currents, that suddenly you'd be in work and then you'd go past a wind tunnel or something that would really wake you up, really enliven the day. That's amazing. This is a podcast about how to be sad well, and I was very struck by some of the research that you've done about how actually our environment quite clearly makes a difference. For example, you touched on people heal more where there are different aesthetic environments. And also I know you've looked into hospitals and there was a case of a, a prison, a women's prison, is that right? Where just as something as simple as the colours or a feeling that there had been investment in the tiling in the bathroom made a big difference to to the women there. Can you tell us about that? This is a story from Hilary Dalk, who's a color expert working in the UK, and she works with prison systems and with the NHS in the UK. And one of the spaces she was asked to work on was a woman's prison. And they had asked her to specify the tiles for the bathroom. And they said, just specify some simple, plain tiles. So she got them to approve an extra little band in the shower, just a row of a pink color and a row of a terracotta tile, just two extra colored tiles. Everything else was plain white, the regulation colors. And a few months later, after it had been installed, she was asked to come back and look at it. 
And everyone at the, all the staff was so excited to take her to the shower. And when she got to the shower, it looked exactly like she designed it. And she said, okay, great. Well, what am I supposed to see here? It just looks the way that I expected it to look. And they said, no, no, you don't understand. Normally, a shower like this would be all smashed. All the tiles would be smashed because the inmates would use the tiles in self-harm attempts. And in this case, they hadn't touched them. And the takeaway was that just adding this small extra band of color made the space look like someone cared about it. It didn't look like an institutional regulation shower. It felt a little bit more defined, a little bit warmer, a little bit more alive. And I think that's sort of like the, at the barest minimum, right? When we look at spaces like prisons or hospitals, spaces that are designed purely for function and have very little extra investment in them. When we see what a difference it makes just to add a little bit there, we can start to understand what kind of effect these spaces might be having on our own lives um, in, in the spaces that we spend our time every day. I think that the idea yeah, of art and a sort of an investment in a, and an idea that somebody cares about how we feel and experience and look about something is really interesting. I spoke to teams who are working on a culture's cure or culture vitamins, they they call them in Denmark, where um, people who are suffering from stress or on long-term sick leave are encouraged to go on a crash course of culture. So going to art um, museums and going to theatre and going to see a symphony. And it's idea that if we are feeling low, that's the first thing that goes. It's the first thing that we perhaps don't bother with, or we think, well, we'll just go for the functional, we'll go for the absolute necessity. But actually then that's that's not a life, is it? That's not that's not living fully. And I guess that correlates with a lot, a lot of what you found, that, that culture and art is important. It's not just the, the icing on the cake. It's a big part of what we need to thrive. Right. Well, we see things like art and colour and, in many cases, nature. We see a lot of those things as a luxury, as an extra in the same way that we tend to see joy as a luxury or an extra. And we can see this when we look at, for example, the design of public housing. Now, if you look at that in the in the US, and it's I believe it's better in many parts of Europe, but it is pretty um, dire here in the US, where the way that we look at these kinds of spaces, spaces designed for the poor, is they're just bare bones. And even though it might not cost any more to paint the walls blue or pink or a warm golden yellow, we don't do it because we view joy as this extra that you have to kind of earn or deserve. And I think we do that to ourselves in a lot of different ways in our lives where we say, okay, well, I have to be good to deserve joy. I have to earn it. I have to be productive to deserve, right? We push it off to the weekends and we say, I have to be really productive and then I can go have this fun outing um, or, you know, have a party or, you know, so we see these things as treats. We see them as extras. And the same is true of the way that we view aesthetics. We view them as extras, as, as a bonus, as something we have to earn or deserve. And when we do that, what we're really doing is saying that those things are not essential to our humanity, that the goal of humanity is just to survive. When in fact, we know that we are wired not just to survive, we're wired to thrive. We're wired to seek out a state of being that's better than just 
making it through the day. And so if, if we want to reach that, then I think we have to really reframe our understanding of joy, of beauty, of color, and these aesthetics of joy, of art, and say, actually, these aren't extras. We seek them out because they're vital to our humanity. And I wonder how much resistance you have met here as a woman. I think you you touch on that it can be a very gendered issue and the aesthetics of joy maybe have been viewed as, as feminine and the, even the sensation of you know, fun. Glennon Doyle talked really interestingly recently about how many women are sort of trained out of fun. But on the flip side of that, there's this idea that even the idea of dressing in colour or, or or trying to bring fun into our own personal aesthetic feels like quite a gendered place. So I wonder, yeah, have you faced much resistance? Do you think that there is a sexism at play when there is a lack of joy in many of our lives? Well, I think many of the aesthetics of joy that we've talked about, color, certainly curves is one we haven't talked about, but many people view curves as more feminine and straight lines and angles as more masculine. And certainly curves are associated with joy. We see circles and sort of bubbly, round, organic shapes often associated with joy the world over. I think what happens when we have this divide, this sort of gendered sense of aesthetics is that we do see that men feel held back from adopting those aesthetics. So they feel uh, less able to wear color, less able to wear pattern, less able to um, embrace some of these bright, joyful aesthetics in their lives. And women, because masculinity is what is seen as serious and valuable, women also feel held back from it. And so I think it's interesting because, yes, there is a, a sexism uh, when we gender something as basic as aesthetics. There's definitely a sexism at play that holds us back from it, but it cuts both ways. Um, so it holds women back from it because we're afraid of seeming unserious and silly if we wear bright color to the office. But it also holds men back from from experiencing that joy as well. And so I think understanding that it's not just about saying that, you know, trying to pretend that, that these aren't, that there isn't sort of a gendered feeling to these aesthetics, but rather changing the way that we value femininity in our society. So it's not just about empowering women to be able to experience these aesthetics, but it's about saying, okay, masculinity has certain things to contribute aesthetically to our culture and in terms of virtues and that femininity does as well. And I think if you look at the, the physical world around us, it bears a lot of those masculine aesthetics, hard lines, hard surfaces, little nature, few curves. So bringing a little bit more of the femininity into the space, I think would show the, the, a balance of those two values. Yes, that one is not above the other. You make a great point about that we don't all want to live in um, bond baddie layers that are all angular and minimalist. So it's a very good point. And I wonder if, as you say, you know, masculinity is often held up as the goal for both men and women, which does both of us a disservice. There's also a risk, isn't there, in, in pursuing our own pleasure, in pursuing our own desires and our own joy. And you mentioned them, um, you know, being the first on the dance floor or wearing those bright colours. There is, it, it does feel like you are making yourself vulnerable to do that. How, how are you on overcoming that initial discomfort in the pursuit of something more fulfilling long term? 
as you point out, our society does have a tendency to judge people who exhibit their joy uh, freely. Um, it judges people as silly or self-indulgent or um, childish or trivial. And so that does lead us to hold ourselves back from joy. And I think that there are a couple of ways to overcome that. One is by starting small. I think when we venture a little bit, we don't necessarily have to be the first one on the dance floor, but there are small ways. Maybe it's wearing colorful socks or shoes if you're not ready to go whole body rainbow, right? Small ways of bringing a little bit more joy. I think what often happens is that the voice of judgment is a lot louder in our own heads than it is in other people's. And when people see that, they often feel a sense of joy themselves, um, which instead of being met with judgment, we're often met with excitement. And that gives other people permission to follow their own joy, right? So reframing what you're doing from being this big risk to actually being something where you're giving other people permission mm -hmm. to do it for themselves can make it into a really generous act. So I think that's really one, one very powerful way around this. I think the other thing is that often the judgment starts with ourselves. And so letting go of the judgment that we have toward other people who are following their joy and, and recognizing when you hear that voice, when you're looking at someone and saying, oh God, her, she's always the first one on the dance floor, right? When we have a tendency to judge other people's joy, often it's a kind of jealousy. We're jealous of how free they seem. Um, when we can actually take a breath and say, actually, I'm excited for her, just like I hope she'd be excited for me, just like I hope other people would be excited for me. I think that goes a long way towards starting to diffuse the judgment that we have um, and, and allow ourselves to overcome that. It does take a bit of bravery. There's definitely something about, yeah, the, the confident girl who's first on the dance floor that we all want to be. But I, who is that girl then? Who is she? Because there's always somebody, but I, yeah, I don't know her. It's not me. It's... The, the color thing is really interesting and the, my favorite color is yellow, I will share. And so I have many things that are yellow and on some occasions I will find that I have my yellow phone and I'm wearing my yellow anorak and my yellow shoes and I'm driving my yellow car and then I will catch sight of myself and I will see that children think it's cool and it's hilarious up until the age of about six. But other grown-ups, I can see through their eyes, I do look a little certainly eccentric to be less kind unhinged and there is still a resistance there and and as you say yeah it's this appearing childlike and not entirely serious or to be taken seriously where where does that come from is it just how we've been how we've been raised how we've been socialized is it a western thing is there a you know different cultural biases here do you think this is a deep cultural bias this isn't just something that i think we're carrying around in our heads so Gota in his theory of colors, which dates back to 1810, says that savage nations, uneducated people and children typically prefer vivid colors, whereas people of refinement avoid them in their dress and try to banish them from their presence. Oh right. So let's go all the way back um, to Europe at the midst of colonialism. And you see that there's this equation between color and savage nations. Right. So uh, a sense that color is a sign of, of the primitive and that it's something that if we're to be sophisticated, if we're to be 
rational and elevated examples of humanity, we will resist that temptation to indulge in color and we'll sort of hold ourselves back from it. So this is something that's been with us a long time. Um, and I think that it has really unfortunate, a really unfortunate heritage and that it's been used to diminish people of color, um, indigenous peoples around the world uh, and their cultures. And so understanding that baggage, I think, really helps us to say, okay, well, why are we upholding this in our modern life? And what does serious really mean, right? In the same way that I think we're starting to see the notion of professionalism really questioned a lot and its relationship to white supremacy and understanding that, you know, what we define as professional often has in terms of the way that people wear their hair, the way that people dress often has a lot of trappings of elevating whiteness as as part of that. I think our sense of what colors are acceptable to wear and what is seen as serious carry the exact same baggage. So releasing that a little bit and giving ourselves permission to say, actually, why is being serious so good? Why is being serious so important? And why do I care so much? I think that can really help set us free. Yes, and just examining even or being aware of, as you say, the the bias that we are that we are carrying, and in inverted commas, this idea of good taste. What was the um the book that you referenced first uh, from the eighteen hundreds? Was it? Oh, Goethe and his theory of colors. Oh, how interesting! Gosh, okay, blimey, yeah. So there's a lot to unpack there. And when you are working, you work with some big name clients now. Is that something that you still have to? to bring to the table time and again, is that something that people generally are still needing educating on over and over? I think we all need educating on it over and over. Even I sometimes have the, the impulses to hold myself back from joy. And I think in a corporate space, there's a little bit of a self-selection. People who come to me typically are coming because they're ready for this, but there are always people within those organizations who need to understand it in a different way, um, who haven't maybe been exposed to these ideas. So I think that's that's always true. Well, I wanted to ask about your your personal experiences and I wonder how parenting has changed your views here. I, I find I have three small children. They may or may not be asleep right now, but certainly in the trenches of parenting, joy can feel like a distant prospect. And I wonder how you started working on joy before you became a parent. Is that right? And I wonder how, were there any tensions there and how you found the experience of both of these things? One of the best things I think to come out of my research on joy is really understanding the difference between joy and happiness. So happiness being a broad evaluation of how we feel about our lives over time, has to do with many different factors, including whether we have a sense of meaning and purpose in our life, how we feel about our work, how connected we feel to other people. Happiness is the big stuff in life and how we feel about that. Joy is much simpler and more immediate. It's an intense momentary experience of positive emotion. And it's something we can measure through direct physical expressions, things like smiling and laughter, a feeling of wanting to jump up and down. These are just these little moments that make us feel more alive. When I used to think in terms of happiness, it felt very hard sometimes. It felt very inaccessible. If everything was going right in my life, then maybe I felt happy for a while. But then if something would shift, I would really struggle. But viewing my life in terms of joy made this much easier because 
instead of feeling like everything in my life had to be perfect, every aspect of my life had to be at a 10 all the time, I was free to recognize that there were going to be days, many days when things were going to be anything but perfect. But if I could find just one or two moments of joy, it made the day okay, made the day good. And I think that's how I've thought a lot about parenting, especially becoming a parent for the first time in the middle of a pandemic, because I spent nine months of that with no childcare. And I was trying to work during naps and juggle all of it. And there were days when, you know, this really wasn't my plan. And there were days when it was really, really hard. But every day I would just look for the one or two moments of joy. And if I could find those... I found that I would lie in bed at night and look back and think, we're good here. Like I found those moments, you know, and so that might just mean, you know, just really being present during an hour of play and recognizing that, yeah, I was distracted the rest of the time. But I had this one wonderful moment when, you know, we just both laughed so hard. And that was my day. That was that's what I'll remember from the day. So I think in a way it was my research beforehand that coming into parenthood became like a a lens for seeing this new experience of parenting. And that really helped me. And the reality is that babies are, of course, so joyful um, and they see so many things that you don't see. And they sort of wake your eye up to so many new sources of joy. So that's, of course, really powerful. But having that perspective coming in, I think, really helped me. So you were looking for it and looking, you were able to find it more often, would you say? I think that's true. I think a lot of us miss the joy in our everyday lives because we're looking for these big sources of happiness. So we get so fixated on our goals and what we're tracking towards. And uh, we get so fixated on what we don't have at the moment or feeling behind or feeling like we're out of place or someone else has what we want and we don't have it yet. If we focus instead on these little moments of joy. I guess it's mindfulness, isn't it? It's being present. It's, um, it's noticing. It's a form of it's a form of mindfulness for sure. But I think the difference I would say is that mindfulness teaches us to be present to everything in our lives, to all the experiences, good and bad. And I would say that there are some things I just don't want to be mindful for. <laughs> and that's okay. Oh really? That's fascinating. Such as what? And that's okay. I'm not going to say that you should be mindful every second of the day. What mm-hmm. I would say is look for those moments, look for those opportunities for joy mm-hmm. and lean into those. And so that might mean that when you are doing the dishes at night, zone out, right? Go go daydream, go be somewhere else for a while. And that's okay. But see if you can create an opportunity. You know, in the mornings, my husband takes the baby for a walk every morning. And Sometimes I go and sometimes I don't. I never regret it when I go. And I sometimes do regret it when I don't go, right? So it's that's an opportunity for joy. And leaning into those moments, I think, is what's really important. And they don't have to be the whole day. It's just a few moments a day. That's a very refreshing and possibly controversial thing, the idea of, of zoning out when it's the dull bits. Because, I don't know, it feels like a lot of life is the dull bits. And then are we just tuning them out like on an old fashioned radio? So they're a bit little fuzzy. In my research into sadness, I've, you know, there's, there's lots of studies going back years, but showing that actually in the US, 
Americans tend to be outliers in their enthusiasm for happiness and reluctance to feel sadness. And I, I've spoken to sort of many kind of academics and, and lots of different people from different fields about the pursuit of happiness granted. So, so a little different, but this idea that there's, there's a real reluctance to be sad. And it's the same in the UK where I'm from as well. And there's a real hangover from uh, World War II and, you know, that generation where actually there was no space for the expression of, of feeling anything other than just cheery and getting on with things. I wonder, I don't know, I guess a couple of, I wonder when you were speaking about your day, I wonder whether a couple of moments of joy a day are enough to sustain you on times when life is feeling challenging. Would you say they are for you? They are for me. I think I think it's really important not to conflate the dull moments with feeling true sadness, right? I, I certainly believe that our ability to feel joy is in proportion to our ability to feel sadness. And that if we don't allow ourselves to feel sad, to feel angry, to feel the so-called negative feelings in our lives that we miss out on the amplitude, right? The the height of our joy. Uh, those two things are inextricably linked. So I think it's really important to feel all our emotions. But I think what I would say is that life is lived in little moments, as you would say, many of them are dull, but life is lived in little moments. And when we put so much pressure on ourselves to make every, to be present for every moment and to, you know, they often say this about parenting, like savor every moment. You're not going to get it back. Right. Um, they're growing so fast. The pressure to make everything count ends up making us feel so overwhelmed that it feels like nothing counts. And what I would say is that understanding the way our brains perceive time and, and the way that our memories are formed, we don't remember whole days. We remember moments of days. And so to me, to make a few moments really count every single day, that's what, when we look back at a week or we look back at a month, we'll think, oh God, I remember that morning we found that feather on that walk. I remember how cute it was when we were reading this book and Graham, we turned to the page that had the snowfall and Graham said, snow, because he was so excited about this snow that he probably doesn't even remember seeing because he was too little the last time it snowed. Those are the things that my life is made up of. And more of those, I think, is better than a lot of time spent fretting over why, why I can't be present the whole time. I guess that that's maybe to to distill it. That's how I, I feel. Fair enough. There's a there's a, a fellow Danish happiness researcher called Mike Viking who's written a great book about making memories. You you probably have heard of his work. And yeah, he sort of looked into that science and it's as you say, it's that it's re- repeating that memory. It's um talking about it regularly, it's talking about it as it happens. And yeah, solidifying those moments I think is so powerful. That's really interesting. And knowing all that you know now, intellectually and professionally, what what helps you cope when you are feeling low, when you are feeling sad? Is it, as you say, it's creating those moments? Yeah, I think it's, it's yeah, it's refocusing on the small things and really making sure that I have do a few things each day or week that I know are 
going to bring me joy. And I think it, because I think what happens is it's so easy to opt out of those things. So it's so easy. You know, this weekend, I think I was feeling a little sluggish. It was rainy. It was just not a a great weekend. And, you know, we have a little one who's still taking two naps and we don't have a ton of, you know, free time in the day. And of course, we're all sort of in the midst of reevaluating what's going on with the Delta surge. So a lot of the things that we were thinking, oh, we're going to have a very carefree summer. It's no longer a carefree summer. And we decided it took a little bit of prodding on my husband's part to get us to go to the beach for a walk. And we got there and I thought it was really funny, actually. It was very unconscious. We started walking on the beach and I said, what a glorious day. It was raining. And I thought, it's so funny because when we were at home, I said, what a terrible day. And now we're on the beach and I'm saying, what a glorious day. And I didn't even realize it was so unconscious that it happened. I think it's doing those things that you know, they take a little effort because you don't want to do them. And once you get into that kind of funk, it becomes even harder to do those things. But once you get out and do them, it shifts your whole perspective. So I think it's it's things like that. It's the little things that actually kick off bigger upward spirals that start to make you feel a little bit better, a little bit more energized and like doing some more of those things. And with uh, with you know the ten aesthetics that you've written about and and thinking about color and you know bubbles and rainbows and shapes and are there other sort of maybe top three go tos that will lift your day that you will turn to if if you're really struggling? For sure, uh, I would say freedom is always the first one, which has to do with nature and open space. That one is a pretty reliable source. The second one is abundance. So looking for sensorial stimulation pattern, um, putting on for me a pattern dress, something that feels uh, more vibrant that will always uh, have a a positive effect for me. Um, And then another one is transcendence. So um, transcendence is elevation, the joy of either looking up or being up high um, that is associated with broadened perspective and just feeling a sense of zooming out. And I think that that can be really powerful and helpful. Some of the research on, you know, when we look up at tall things, um, it shows that we actually feel a sense, our sense of self shrink. We feel more connected to other people. We feel a greater sense of generosity and altruism. And so I think that one's really powerful because it helps get us out of that sense of tunnel vision and feel like we can actually see the forest for the trees, literally, and, um, and move forward in our lives. After reading your book, I was having a terrible day solo parenting three children yesterday and everyone was screaming. And so I took them all to a nearby, you know, basically treehouse camp and just sent everyone up trees. And suddenly in a space, as you say, with that perspective, with all of those, the great stuff about awe, A-W-E, and also a place without rules. I think a lot of parenting is saying no and trying to stop children trashing a house, in my experience. Suddenly (laughs) there being no rules was incredibly freeing. Everybody's mood lifted. Suddenly the day flips around. It's, yeah, really powerful. Yeah, that's powerful. I would like a treehouse camp near me. Yes, you need to build one. Just start stringing one up. Be fine. (laughs) And finally, I like to end by asking all my guests, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to your 21-year-old self about how to be sad well? I would say feel the sadness. Actually allow yourself to feel the sadness because it's what will make space for your joy eventually. That's great. 
That's really powerful. I think I might have to have it tattooed on me and make (laughs) T-shirts that we can all wear. So feel the sadness and that will help make space for the joy. Mm. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for speaking to me today, Ingrid. A real pleasure and everybody should check out Joyful. Thank you so much for joining me today. Please do rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help others find us and helps us to make more episodes. You can find out more about How to Be Sad, the book and the podcast online at Ms. Helen Russell. And take care.